this episode is rough around the edges. Um, I'm going to ramble a bit in the heat. So there's no AC. Uh, the internet is uh, dodgy around the country. Um, I apologize for the sweat line. And uh, if I appear frustrated, I also apologize. And I actually wasn't sure if some of the topics were worth uh, putting into an episode. Maybe that they're shallow or superficial. But uh, no, I think there's something actually worth exploring. And I'll start with what I think is maybe the least consequential. Uh, and I'll go from there to some things that I think are, are more important. Uh, let me vent. I'm going to vent about AUB. I'm a alumni. I consider Ross Beirut home, even when I'm not living in Ross Beirut. My family home is there. Uh, I grew up around AUB. I went to ACS just further down on the Corniche, which you can access from AUB. And when we were younger, uh, there was lighter restrictions. Students could go in and out. So I could walk through IC, through AUB, and go down to ACS. And the stairwells there were still accessible all the way from Bliss going down to the Corniche. And even when they were walled off in the 90s, we could still jump over and use them. Anyway, I'm saying that because I'm a, I believe in this institution. Um, I named the podcast after the tree of knowledge, the banyan tree, several planted across campus. Uh, I mean, without AUB, I don't think Lebanon would be the same. And I'll go a step further. I don't think the region would be the same. This is a very important institution that has educated too many of us and has, I think, brought out the best of us, the best, the best in us. And unfortunately, in more recent, uh, maybe recent generations, it sends our brightest abroad. And it's not AUB's fault. It's that this country, and perhaps even uh, the region, um, is in its worst shape. <clears throat> and anyone that wants to uh, pursue their dreams, there we go, or maybe even pursue 24-hour electricity, let alone 12 hours of electricity, I hope it comes back, um, they leave and they, and they, they depart. And many return. Uh, my parents' generation, my father, left in the middle of his master's degree. He was studying economics at AUB, just above the cafeteria. Uh, and... 1975, the Civil War begins. Uh, he makes one last trip to Beirut before staying in Tripoli until 1976, when him and my mom flee the country. And he later pursues his graduate education abroad in Texas. But AUB was his bachelor's degree. AUB was the beginning of his master's degree. And AUB today is where I go to think of him. Uh, my, my happiest memories of him are walking on campus to the point that there's a bench in front of the economics uh, department that we, uh, that we donated in his name and a bench that sits next to Basil Flehan's bench. And they were friends. They both went to AUB. They're both products of that university. And I think had my father not gone down the political path in this country 
Um, he probably, and this is speculation, he probably would have been comfortable enough, perhaps lecturing at AUB, uh, having some affiliation with the university. And it's not just him. It's not just my family. It's not just the families we all know and we talk about. I mean, it's Lebanon. Lebanon's best have been in this university. And it's been now 160 years or so, 156 years to be exact, of, a, of an experiment. A missionary school that adheres to secular values and that promotes rich diversity in thought uh, attracts a large swath of Lebanese and geography, community, uh, endless scholarship opportunities. I mean, it's something worth being proud of. So I speak with, uh, with compassion for, uh, and respect for AUB, which is why it maybe ruffles me more than it should. I mean, had uh, I'm going to pull this up. There we go. And let me let me fix the lighting. One second. All right. Had uh, had I gone just to uh, Stanford, had I been smart enough to go to Stanford, um, this wouldn't even matter. I don't care when other universities change their logos. And the reason I'm mentioning Stanford, it'll make sense in a bit, but uh, I couldn't care less. If another university wants to modernize its logo, wants to uh, insert text that maybe means something to them today, I don't care. It's not personal. But for AUB, it is. AUB, it's personal. Stanford. Uh, AUB's updated logo, which is not the most important thing to talk about today or any day. But the logo, the reason it bothers a lot of us on social media, and I think it actually bothers a lot of the AUB alumni community, community is that it looks like it's pulled from Stanford. I'm going to embed them in the episode. Uh, it's just too close. Type font, color, just a little too close. And what's more important, it's not even that, it's um, our celebrated cedar tree. Looks like a sequoia tree from Stanford, from California. So, I mean, we don't have to exaggerate the cedar tree's prominence all the time. We can tone it down when we need to. I mean, it's not the end all and be all, or whatever that phrase is. It's not. Not everything that's Lebanese has to have the cedar tree attached. I mean, I have a banyan tree, for example. I'm, I'm not that important. But when you're going to put the cedar tree, make it look like a cedar tree. Don't make it look like a uh, cheap imitation of Stanford's sequoia tree or what looks like a bastard child between a sequoia and a cedar tree. First. Second, the caption. Now. I mean, let's, okay, let's go back to the logo. Let's just say it's a marketing mistake or actually, you know what? Let's say the team at AUB that does this stuff, whatever the communications, I guess, let's say they really like the new logo. Fine, fine. Uh, I kind of mentioned this on, on social media that I think it does make sense to change over time. And 
you don't want the same logo for decades and especially when technology improves photoshop improves you want to update your logo but not to the radical modernist reinterpretation of what AUB is. And the caption. It is our sincere pleasure to share the revamped logo of the American University of Beirut. This new look reaffirms our identity as one of the most prestigious universities of the global south. Firmly rooted in Beirut, yet with a robust global presence. I mean, perhaps if you're doing... Uh, political development undergraduate course or some intro to political science or even maybe some you're learning the updated terminology for what was once considered mainstream and is now largely deemed offensive poor third world underdeveloped or the more recent when i was a graduate student developing i guess now global South is the friendliest way of trying to sort of flatten uh, these, uh, these words and make them less or maybe elevate them and power and all that stuff in postmodern uh, lexicon. I, I guess that's where it comes from because I don't know why the hell AUB is referring to the global South. Uh, we're a Protestant missionary school from the 1860s, uh, an American missionary named Daniel Bliss, under Ottoman rule, sets up the Syrian Protestant College, and this is meant for Eastern Mediterranean Ottoman citizens and regional citizens for there to be an educational institution. I mean, this is around the time St. Joseph is opened as well, and you have French uh, education. American education, it's not just AUB. Later you have BUC, which is now LAU. Anyway, and, and all these colleges in, in now Turkey, I think it's Roberts College or maybe the one in Istanbul, the name escapes me now. I think it's Roberts College. Anyway, Global South. I mean, maybe if you're building a school today in a country that is comfortable calling itself that, and you want to maybe market yourself in a way that attracts funding, desperation, I mean, that level, to me, is the most unattractive, uh, unfair way to celebrate AUB and another academic year. You want to get into uh, donors and you want to ask for money because the school is bankrupt and you want to insert fancy terminology to show that you know maybe how to differentiate yourself, uh, whatever. Even then, it's a stretch, but AUB is not uh, one of these, quote, global south uh, institutions. It's a cosmopolitan adventure in Beirut, and it's, a, it's an institution that has attracted east and west, it has pulled in many people around the world and has sent Lebanese all across the world. And uh, I don't think it ever thought of itself. This is how I see it, even when I'm, I mean, I'm in the post-war years. I never think, I don't, I don't think AB ever thought of itself as narrowing its scope to north or south, whether in economics or in geography or in politics. 
I know the global south is not south of the equator. And I know global north is more an economics uh, way of thinking, way of, way of defining. But AUB is above that. AUB doesn't go down that road, or at least my, my, my experience of AUB. And I think the earlier generations as well. And I would bet enough of the new crowd as well. So that, I think, is a very narrow, very unfortunate uh, way of diminishing what AUB stands for. I hope I'm being uh, fair in my, uh, in my, my venting. I'm going to jump now from AUB to Mikhail Gorbachev or Mikhail Gorbachev or whatever. You, I don't know how to pronounce his name accurately. Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail. Mikhail Gorbachev. I grew up as a child with this man on the news. Anyone in my generation knows him as the symbol, the, the powerful symbol of the last years of Soviet Union as it once existed. Words like perestroika and glasnost and terms that became synonymous with Soviet reform and, of course, the end of the Cold War and the implosion of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union, ushering in modern-day Russia and all the other republics that are now independent. Uh, that moment, I think I, I can say this with certainty, although maybe when you get so local and so narrow in the, in the discussion, it's not seen this way, but I believe this. The positive change that happened throughout Eastern Europe whether it's the Berlin Wall collapsing, whether it's Czechoslovakia and its Velvet, Velvet Revolution and the friendly divorce between the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, whether it's Poland, solidarity, ushering in democracy, whether it's the end of Ceausescu in Romania, the Iron Wall that comes crumbling down, the security parameters of what was once Soviet sphere and Soviet influence in the region, when Moscow did not get involved in November 1989, when unrest swept the entire Eastern European sphere, the Berlin Wall, that most important moment where Soviet troops were not sent, and the East German regime was not pushed to crack down, that's when positive change begins. Positive change, security climate changes. And with that, reform becomes possible. November 1989, the Berlin Wall is crumbling. It's collapsing. People are bringing it down, chipping it. And I remember these are early memories of my life on CNN, watching imagery of Berliners at night, East and West Berliners coming to the wall and chipping away at this wall that stood for decades. It's within days you have the Ta'if Agreement signed here, uh, signed in Saudi Arabia concerning this country. And if you can just imagine the, the vast, vast difference between the end of Soviet intrusion and the, the solidification of Syrian intrusion into Lebanon. That's when reform becomes impossible. And I mean serious reform, not cosmetic reform. 
serious reform. Uh, it becomes circum it becomes sabotage, it becomes actually institutional hijacking bent to serious concerns. That's the end of any aspiration for post-war fundamental change. Instead, we have parallel change, whether it's Rafiq Hariri's economic ideas, whether it's Rafiq Hariri's diplomatic ideas, his foreign policy trying in his later years to circumvent the Syrians, or even for that matter, standard relations with other countries where you don't have the usual channels, the usual channels that are corrupted, largely corrupted under Syrian pressure. That parallel way of trying to move ahead without running into the Syrians, both ideas crash in 2005. But then in 2005, you have another attempt here in Lebanon, unlike Ta'if, which is not really the culmination of Lebanese aspirations. I mean, Ta'if is... You have Aoun and Jaja bombing each other. You have paralysis in the country. You have de facto what looks like increasing partition happening. Anyway, there's no uprising to end the civil war, but there's an uprising in 2005 to end Syrian rule. Rather than us having our Berlin Wall moment, we get the Syrians to leave. The soldiers and Mukhabarat do, do exit the country. But uh, the inheritors of that security apparatus become our living nightmare. Iran, through Hezbollah, cements what was once Syria's rule, turns into something less, uh, less suffocating. It's not concerned with PR, I mean, Hezbollah doesn't care if we love or hate them. Uh, the Syrian occupation, we were always afraid of who was listening, who was watching, who was sitting next to us. All of us, to a degree, can scream and shout as much as we want about Hezbollah. And when, do, when things do happen, they're shared. For example, what happened to Hassan Sha'ban uh, and Dima Sadiq. When these things happen, there is pressure. There is fear tactics. There is an insistence on shutting up. But this is one of, I think, a narrative war and one that does not lead necessarily to, uh, to murder. I could be wrong here. But I think the line now is solely security. It's not about having uh, 100% alignment with what the Syrians wanted. I think Hezbollah, by design, is more flexible. It's not interested in occupying. It's one foot in, one foot out. But that one foot in, one foot out dance, which they depend on, uh, having a state that functions to a degree, but functions to their concerns with security. That's when you end up, I think, with a dilemma, which is one between cause and consequence. It's something I think about often. I'll share a private story. Uh, I think it's okay. I didn't get any uh, sort of, uh, there was no insistence on keeping this private, so I think I can make it public. Uh, the night before the northern remnants of the silos, what was left up until last week, uh, the raging fire that had spread to the top of the silos. So this was, I mean, 24, 36 hours before. 
even less maybe, I, I can't really remember. But it's the night, it's actually not the night before, it's the night before that one. So two nights before, but 36 hours or so. Anyway, it doesn't even matter at this point. It's just that we all knew that the northern section was going to fall. It's a matter of time. And I mean, from my own, from, from my own experience, this is, I think we all have this feeling Every time you drive out of Beirut heading north, you're looking at the silos, you're just looking at the bend, and you know it's a matter of hours, perhaps, and all of us, I think, or most of us, are looking at the silos when we drive by. I would park often, whether heading north, I would park and sort of look across the highway, or heading back to Beirut, uh, I would park where the Act for, in Act for Justice and the Independence sort of... Uh, Metalwork, these post-August 4, uh, almost like, uh, what I mean, I don't know how to, uh, memorials, let's say, or whatever they are. Uh, the ones that are just on the highway. I would stand between them and watch the fire raging. And uh, I was standing two nights before. Uh, there were a lot of camera, crew, and film, film just people waiting. And it struck me as sort of that they were coming, I think, almost every day, just sort of parked and waiting, trying to catch it live. I was there late at night, closer to midnight. Uh, and it's very dark. There's no electricity, no street lights, nothing like that. The fire is raging. And I didn't even notice this. I was standing for maybe five minutes looking at the fire, not really concentrating on people around me, but suddenly I, like, I, I picked up, there was Najat Saliba's voice right next to me. And I turned and she was standing maybe a meter away. And I don't think she noticed that I was there either, but we were both standing, looking at the flame, but she was talking. And I looked further, she was talking to Milham Khadaf. So they were there together. I said hello to both. Uh, I wanted, I was curious how they saw this and what they were thinking. <clears throat> and I, I maybe I, I tried sort of inserting an opinion to ask whether or not it would resonate with them. Um, I think it did to a degree with Najat, it didn't with Milham. Uh, it's that they were looking at the last stretch of a questionably governable country that this was the next phase of what it looks like a failed state and we're watching the, the just the last seconds of modern lebanon burn in front of us and there was a positivity spin from milham saying that we still have to do what we can which is a, he should say that he is actually as an mp he should say that that is the message he should deliver but i always thought that it just it misses maybe a mo it misses something in it, which is then what can you do, in, in someone in your shoes what can you do other than just look at the fire, uh, Najat was more receptive and she actually asked me to expand on what I was saying, and while we were talking separately, uh, Milham got into a car and told Najat to join him, and Najat, I asked if I could join, and she was receptive. I went with them in their car and 
it's almost like a dark comedy. We're trying to get past an army checkpoint to get close to the silos. And the army checkpoint told us that we had to go through a safer entry point. And we drove around, we looped around until we entered that safety, sa safer entry point. And the army truck was ahead of us, but the truck they brought was too big to enter the, the entry point. There's like a metal protective thing. It's just measuring the size of trucks that enter. They chose a truck that was too big. So we, they, they almost got stuck. They actually tried driving through it to a degree and jammed. And eventually they were able to pull out. So that's, I mean, this is kind of like a, you don't really know what to say because you kind of expect it at this point that just nothing works anymore. And just, here you have a, a very, very vivid example of the whole thing is just screwed up. Anyway, they pull out. We manage to go around through another entry point. It's almost like circles, if you will. We got in, but as we get in, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's blatant. There's intelligence everywhere. There's mukhabarat. And the mukhabarat crowd, there was security that felt like it was uh, state-approved but substate in nature. Regardless, maybe that's not even the most important thing because I think we all accept that that customs, sensitive sites, borders, airport, the port, the areas, points of entry and exit, Hezbollah has a role to play. Uh, and obviously, groups that are either sympathetic or working with them or members of the party are, uh, are keeping an eye open, even on the blown up section of the port. So they're with us. They're watching. And, uh, I mean, I watched two, two change block MPs. Both voted in from October 17. Voters uh, brought in to change the way politics is done. I watched Najat Sadiba explain to the army personnel next to us why this is a serious problem how the fire could spread if the silos fall, uh, the safety measures that should be taken, and the army official just sort of agreeing, but both kind of aware that there's nothing that they can do. Behind, it's like, uh, it feels like a nightmare. You have the port on fire. Uh, sorry, not behind. To the left of us, standing right where we're standing, to the left of us was that shunken, uh, shunken, sunken ship that had tipped over following the blast. It's still there. And then, if you pan out a bit, behind the silos, just sort of further north, uh, is a, a club, a nightclub, blasting music. So the background, the soundtrack to this horrible scene is techno music. And there's people dancing there. There's music, there's there's like uh, these um, tiki, whatever they're called, those torches, the fire. I mean, there's, there's, there's a party happening, not far away. Perhaps far enough away so that when the silos collapse, they're not going to get directly impacted. The debris will obviously, there's going to be dust in the way. 
But uh, I mean, it's just like it's exactly how I imagined Beirut in the 1980s, where you have Lebanese that carried on even when they were living through hell. You had war. And for me, August 4 is a direct consequence of us being a war zone. It's a consequence of being a war zone. And I'm going to expand on this. I'm going to link the 1980s and what I'm trying to talk about when it comes to cause and consequence. Ammonium nitrate that does not reach Syria but gets parked in Beirut and 2,000 tons of it that goes missing, assumed to go to Syria. That in itself, that is the problem. It's that the Lebanese port accepts weapons-grade ammonium nitrate and parks it there. The geopolitical use, the war use, the deadly use of ammonium nitrate is the story. The 700 tons that were left there carelessly, years on end, what is it, six, seven years, whatever it was, that blow up in August 2020, that's collateral. And the reason it's collateral is because this is a sovereign, this is supposed to be a sovereign state where institutions are monitored, where sensitive sites are actually looked after, and where the army is the sole authority when it comes to violence. And customs and all of that is not pressured or bribed or perverted or whatever, forced uh, to adhere to a neighboring regime's concerns. We can't do that. So instead you have the byproduct of war, which is weapons. What's left of them? Leftovers in a port, in a hangar, where no one can do anything about it. And if they try to, my bet is that if anyone tried to make this a concern, they would have been the kind of crowd that would never have been allowed into power. Uh, the president, all the way down to anyone involved in the security of that, of that uh, port, those that would speak out and try to correct that would either be thrown out of the presidency or thrown out of government or silenced or killed. And I had this debate with Paul Najjar, uh, Alexander Najjar's father, the late Alexandra's father. And uh, I even challenged him on this. And I don't know who's right in this sort of soft debate, but had he been president for those six years, remove Michel Aoun, if Paul Najjar entered Ba'abda, the man, I think, would have been removed had he tried to do anything about the ammonium nitrate ship that was entering Lebanon. And had he tried to do anything about it afterwards, I think he would have been removed. Um, and that's why I think you end up with players that pander to Hezbollah that are in key, uh, key posts of power. And Michel Aoun is the most obvious example of that. So was Saad Hariri in his later years, and obviously Nabih Birri too. But going back to the 1980s, Nabih Birri, Harakat Amal, battled Hezbollah for years. The only party that has Hezbollah blood on its hands in Lebanon today is Harakat Amal. And in a, in a real serious way, they battled that group. That competition, that security competition, that paralysis and that 
Syria and Iran are not always getting along in Lebanon. Bloodiest years, perhaps. I mean, there are terrible, terrible battles that take place. But it's between those two parties. The whole point about cause and consequence, and the reason I went to Gorbachev to begin with, and the reason I'm trying to link this all together, is that I look at the moment Najat and Milhem Khalaf are looking and trying to do something, knowing that they can't do anything, Milhem calling people, some people not answering, some people answering, not able to do much, all of us aware that this is just a moment to take photos, really, not more than that. All of us are guilty of that too. They are like East European reform-minded individuals in the last years of Soviet rule and Soviet influence uh, trying to apply some pressure. I think they're the same. Their ability to do anything about it will not, uh, their inability will not change until the security situation ends. And um, I think we are slowly witnessing the slow momentum of what is Iran's security apparatus changing. Some ways maybe for the better, some ways not, I don't know. But uh, I think this is not a permanent situation. And then an individual like Gorbachev. Gorbachev died yesterday. Uh, there was a moment not that long ago, eight, nine years ago, a bit longer, where uh, Rouhani in Iran was imagined to be someone like Gorbachev. Uh, imagined because he's clearly not Gorbachev. And he's not the center of power that we assume. I mean, he doesn't. He has a more, maybe more, more symbolic today than than anything. But anyway, someone like him in in Iran, and he's no longer president. But regardless, the gestures he was making, the goodwill gestures, uh, and the nuclear deal that was being signed back then, it was on its un, it was underway. Uh, there was an opening. The Americans were talking to Iran. The Saudis were talking to Iran, the Emiratis. It uh, seemed like the, the Europeans, everyone was talking to Iran. Uh, the maybe wishful thinking, maybe, but the encouragement at least for him to open Iran and end the security suffering that has plagued the region. Uh, even my father, his last words, he wrote a missive to Rouhani. Uh, calling on him to reconsider Iran's relationship with Lebanon vis-a-vis -vis Hezbollah. I think the end of this nightmare will begin when Iran does have someone like Gorbachev. Gorbachev was the Soviet leader who tried to hide the aftermath of Chernobyl in Ukraine. Uh, the the, the dust cloud, the, the, the impact spread across Europe. I mean, parts of Ukraine and Belarus today, you can't even go there because of contamination. But Gorbachev is the same Soviet leader trying to mitigate the fallout from Chernobyl and years later, not allowing Moscow to interfere with change in Eastern Europe. It's the same guy. Uh, Gorbachev is a Soviet leader who's also opening up Russia. 
and reaching out to the Americans and trying, trying to forge a new path forward. Events that happen after and the end of Soviet influence and all of that, I mean, you cannot discount Gorbachev from that story and how Russians think of him today and whether or not Russians reminisce of the Soviet uh, era and whether or not Putin's obsessed about reclaiming that lost leverage. And I think the war in Ukraine is a clear example today. I think all of that is, is short-sighted and short-lived. Um, I think that's a permanent shift. And I think uh, it's inevitable that once the security climate ends, it's, it's very difficult, if not perhaps impossible, to reclaim it. I think the Iranian era will end in this part of the world. But it's impossible to say when. It's impossible to imagine right now a Gorbachev emerging in Iran. Maybe a lot of us were betting on the wrong guy with Rouhani. But there will come a time where somebody like him does emerge, whether it's by presidency or through the Revolutionary Guards Council. Someone in the military, the military is more important today than ever, and looks at his proxies in the region and says, we need to reposition. Who knows when, when that will happen? But then you will have a situation where these two individuals and anyone in their shoes and other reformers as well from traditional parties, that they'll have a shot at rebuilding this country. That's when things change. Uh, up until then, I think it's going to be similar to the 1980s. During the civil war in Lebanon, and to a degree during uh, the Cold War in Eastern Europe, where Lebanese handled pain. I mean, car theft on a daily basis, uh, uh, all types of robbery happening all the time petty theft all over the place, insecurity, uh, infrastructure collapsing, the roads are unbearable, people dying because of unnecessary car crashes that have nothing to do with the driver and more to do with just poor infrastructure and no electricity, darkness at night all over the place, lira devalued, Worthless. I mean, this is exactly how Lebanon functioned in the 1980s, with the exception that we don't have multiple militia, we have one. But it's the same type of paralysis, and no one could do anything about it here. Not until Ta'if, but Ta'if made things worse. Doha in 2008 made things even worse. And maybe Cairo in 1970, 1969 made this country ungovernable. But that's the story. One of regional deals that permeate rogue security and entrench them further into Lebanese affairs. And when Lebanese try to get dislodge it, it comes back to kill it to kill. So that's the story. And then you have another situation, which is the. Uh, dream among many Maronites to reach Ba'abda. Um, whether it's the Syrian-friendly Sleiman Frangiyi, whether it's the Iranian-friendly Gibran Basil, uh, whether it's the so-called neutral voices, some of them ranging in how neutral they are depending on the subject, 
names like Tracy Shamoun, who launched her campaign two days ago, Michelle Mawad, who's, you know, quite vocal about wanting to reach Ba'abda, or any of the other names that are emerging right now, or even the prime minister that will come post Najib Miati, uh, they will be people with limited power, the way Eastern European governments tolerated soft reform to a point until the security climate improved in their favor. So you will see a lot of people trying to mitigate a storm without much effect, I think, at the end. And I think in that long story of uh, trying to make Lebanon governable once again, that sounds like Trump, trying to find a way to reclaim what was once a wobbly, inefficient, but functioning enough country called Lebanon, um, one has to address uh, the root cause of what brought all this collateral damage to begin with. And the consequences were always chasing after them, trying to fix them. I feel bad for Milham Khalaf and Najat Saliba trying to mitigate collateral damage to a war zone-like blast, the largest non-nuclear blast in modern history. The largest nuclear blast is Chernobyl. So it's number two to blast size uh, damage. Um, I, I don't know. I think uh, what hurts is seeing the progress made thrown away by <clears throat> people that are hell-bent on reclaiming security rather than lost sovereignty. And Putin in Ukraine, uh, Syria trying to re-enter Lebanon, and Iran up until now unwilling to let go, willing to engage nuclear discussions, but not its proxies or its, its, its tools for violence in the region. Um, I guess we're in a very, very challenging and painful era, but all of this is short-lived. <clears throat> it's a matter of time. I think at the end of the day, it would be lovely to see uh, reform-minded politicians able to do more, not just make phone calls or plea with security officials or try to make things happen knowing that they can't do much. Um, it would be nice to spend the last years of my life knowing that the road has been forged, there's a road ahead, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but that requires security change that Gorbachev best represented in 1989, 1990. Uh, we have to wait for Iran's Gorbachev to emerge. Until then, it's a dance between cause and consequence. Thank you.